Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, will share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Michael Liddy speaks with Kyle Samani and Tushar Jane. Mike is a partner at Evanston Capital Management, a $4.5 billion hedge fund of funds whose CIO, Adam Blitz, was a past guest on Capital Allocators. 
Kyle and Tushar are co-founders and managing partners of Multicoin Capital, a $4.5 billion thesis-driven manager of cryptocurrencies, tokens, and blockchain companies. Kyle and Tushar founded Multicoin in 2017 and have grown its hedge fund and venture businesses to one of the largest in the space. Before they get going, Mike and I discuss Evanston's process to invest in the space, diligence specific to crypto strategies, selection of Multicoin, and fit in their portfolio. Mike, great to see you. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've thought about even making an investment in a crypto slash blockchain related hedge fund. Yeah, sure. So Evanston's history with the space goes back to mid-2017, I'd say, when some of our existing managers, friends of the firm, started coming to us and telling us about Bitcoin and Ethereum and what at the time was this ICO boom, things that were going up a thousand percent in 10 minutes. And it was the impetus for us to start doing our own homework on the space and digging in and talking to some of the players in the space of which there were only a handful. And I think our conclusion at the time was this is super interesting. And I know some of us put personal capital to work in the space, but also didn't think it was ready for institutional prime time, if you will. We weren't ready to put client capital at risk in the space, but we stayed close to it. And coming out of the 2018 crypto winter, we looked at it and did another deep dive in early 2019, initially really focused on Bitcoin. Bitcoin at the time trading at 5,000. We just saw incredible asymmetry to the extent this digital gold thesis played out. And so we got involved there first. And then that was the segue into looking at this, I'd call it cottage industry of crypto dedicated hedge funds that had popped up that honestly were much more interesting, intriguing than back in 2017. And you had real talented folks coming into the space, folks with real technical programming backgrounds who could really understand the underlying blockchain technology. And then doing it within an institutional wrapper. So a real back office, reputable service providers. And so at that point, it just became much more investable space for us. And so we spent time with maybe half a dozen of the preeminent crypto specialists at the time of which Multicoin was certainly one of them. And how did you think about investing with one compared to like a mini portfolio of a few? It's a good question. I mean, our DNA as a firm historically has been to invest with conviction and concentration. And so when we find a manager that we think is adding real alpha in a sustainable way over time, we want to allocate to it in a size where it can be impactful to bottom line performance. And ultimately, we think that's kind of how you outperform your benchmark. And so we wanted to take that same approach here in the crypto space. How is your diligence process different in this space than other hedge funds? In some ways, it was the same in terms of underwriting talent. And I think one of the things we really liked about Multicoin, I mean, just on the normal, call it long, short equity hedge fund side, we really want to see a passion for investing. And I think that is similar in crypto land. So with Kyle and Tushar, I think one of the things that is abundantly clear from the beginning of talking to them is the authentic way in which they come to the space and how this is really a passion project for them first and foremost. So 
those elements of underwriting are very similar. There are definitely differences when it comes to, it was a heavier lift, obviously, in terms of it's a little easier to underwrite how a manager is thinking about a stock because we know how to underwrite a stock. It took us a little bit more time to get comfortable with the underlying technology and use cases of blockchain and all that. So those were the types of diligence we were doing behind the scenes, I'd say, to corroborate what Multicoin was telling us. How did you get up to speed on doing that work to get to a level of comfort where you're ready to invest? I think it's talking to smart folks that we know and respect and getting their perspective and then doing our own homework. I mean, I think what you hear from a lot of folks in crypto space is the best way to understand the space is to get your hands dirty. So it can be as simple as reading the Bitcoin white paper and then going out and buying some Bitcoin yourself and understanding how private keys work and all that. But then once you go down that rabbit hole and start talking about Ethereum and all the protocols built on top of that start getting involved with some of the real use cases and go from there. So I think that's the approach that we took. How do you think about how you would size a position in a new asset area like this in an existing portfolio? I think it gets back to, I mentioned, we want to invest with conviction and concentration. So again, while it's a new area, we still want it to be of size where it can be impactful to performance, but for a space that's going to be highly volatile while offering asymmetric returns, we will take that into account and the newness. And so it's going to be a little bit smaller as a result. Well, Mike, thanks for bringing these guys in the fold. And it is a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Kyle Tushar, great to see you guys. Looking forward to this conversation. Good to see you as well, Mike. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having us on. Pleasure to be here. Always interesting to start from the beginning and dig in on the backstory. And maybe we rewind all the way back to before you guys became serial entrepreneurs and talk a bit about some of the big influences and experiences in your lives growing up that helped build you into the individuals you are today. I don't know, maybe Tushar, do you want to start there? Sure. My name is Tushar, so you can recognize our voices. I grew up in New York and was always really interested in technology. Ended up going to school at NYU and studied finance and political science, but knew that my career was going to be on the technology side of things. So after NYU, I left and moved to Austin. Kyle actually convinced me to come and move down here. He's from Austin. And we worked together at an electronic medical record company for about a year. This was back in 2012 when that was the hot new thing. Then after a year working there, we decided to leave and both start our own companies. I'll let Kyle tell the story about Pristine. I started a company called ePatient Finder, which used patients' electronic medical record data to help them find clinical trial options or other advanced treatments that they may not have known about or their physician may not have known about. Uh, that went relatively well, ended up being rolled up by a larger company here in Austin called Elego Health Research. And I found myself looking for you know, the next thing to do. We had both seen Bitcoin earlier, like in 2013, but weren't that excited because you couldn't do anything with the Bitcoin. But in 2016, Kyle showed me the Ethereum white paper. And what we saw was the ability to use code to create a new type of human economic coordination, like a new type of firm. And we thought, oh, this is what internet native businesses will look like. This is going to be the next big type of organization. So quickly fell into what I would call the intellectual event horizon of crypto and could not 
stop thinking about it, spent all day, every day, arguing with people on the internet, thinking about you know how this technology is going to evolve, how things will go. And in 2017, we decided to launch Multicoin. So I actually grew up in Austin, Texas, and that is where the firm is based today. I spent a lot of my childhood playing video games, which I want to say has some relevance to crypto. And I think probably will have more relevance over the next few years than the prior few years. I'm very fortunate. My dad's a computer scientist, so I always grew up around computers and technology, programming when I was pretty young, building computers, hacking, all those kinds of things. Went to NYU, studied finance, and Tushar and I met at NYU. We kind of really bonded in college over our shared interest of software and finance and kind of that intersection. At the same time, Tushar started ePatient Finder. Two weeks later, I started Pristine. Pristine built software for Google Glass for surgeons. I know Google Glass was kind of a silly consumer product, but it was actually a very useful tool for surgeons because surgeons are sterile. They have to work with their hands. And Glass was a pretty useful tool for them because it's a hands-free mode of operation. We built a lot of workflow automation tools for surgeons, um, ended up raising about $5 million in adventure, grew to a few million in revenue, about almost 25 or 30 employees. And then Google killed Google Glass, which as you can imagine was a small problem for the business. After that happened, I ended up pivoting the company The company was ultimately acquired in a very small little outcome for mostly IP and for engineering talent. In 2016, I was kind of fiddling around with things to do with my life, was a little bit jaded about healthcare, just generally. I remember at one point I was playing around with some of Stripe's APIs. Even as far back as March 2016, Stripe was a pretty hyped up company. And I remember digging through the docs and I was like, you know, you can take a credit card payment and not a lot more. I was like surprised. I I just kind of expected there to be more, like a lot more, given the degree of hype. And then like a week later, I ended up fiddling around with Ethereum and it just struck me Ethereum was just infinitely flexible. And I think that's probably the first time when I appreciated what does it mean to have permissioned versus permissionless finance was comparing those two things side by side. We didn't fully appreciate, I think, what DeFi would become. I started chatting with Tushar about this and we both started to quickly realize this is going to have important implications for finance. And that's what started pulling us in. Over the course of 2016, spent time reading and learning about the ecosystem, investing my own capital. One of the parts of history and monetary policy and theory that I was less familiar with, so things like distributed systems, cryptography, and all the like. By the spring of 2017, I had developed a full-time internet hobby and made the decision to launch Multicoin in May of 17 with Tushar. We launched our hedge fund on October 1st of 2017. That vehicle today has several billion in AUM. We added Venture Fund 1 in July of 18. That fund is now 100% deployed. We are currently deploying out of Venture Fund 2 which is a $100 million fund. We have today a 15-person team all over the US and a couple in China as well. We're having a ton of fun, investing a lot of tokens, a lot of interesting companies and having a blast along the way. I'm curious just on the personal side, any story as to how you guys met each other at NYU? And I guess subsequent to that, how Kyle, you were able to convince Tushar to move to Austin? I don't think either of us remembers where we first met. We definitely met freshman year. We were in the same class at NYU Stern. But we didn't start becoming close until probably sophomore year. Back then, I was reading TechCrunch religiously every day. I was so excited to see which new tech startups got funded and whatever. And I think Tushar was feeling the same way. We were just sharing articles back and forth on these things getting funded. We were both very big Apple bulls at the time. And so anything Apple related, we got excited about. There was a blog that came out around this time called the Simco. That stands for asymmetric competition. The guy Horace Dedu writes extensively about Apple, and we both got really into that. This is a few years before Stratechery came out. Yeah, we just nerded out about tech, finance stuff, a million emails back and forth. I don't know, Shar, if you want to comment on how I convinced you to move to Austin. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember the articles. Like This was back in the day of RSS feeds, and everyone used RSS readers. And I remember being like, oh, someone who actually likes reading these same things, like, Anantech and Ars Technica, I remember, were two other blogs that we 
both really liked. And for some reason, we were really into like chips and Moore's Law and see how much faster it could go. For no practical purpose, we weren't going to do anything. I also remember playing a lot of video games. I, I think, you know, we, we played Halo quite a bit back in the day. With regards to the question of how Kyle convinced me to move to Austin, I just knew that I didn't want to spend my life coloring in between the lines. I knew what the expected path was, and I knew that I did not want to take the expected path. I thought going and building something would be better for me. And so honestly, I don't, I don't think it was that hard to change my mind there. Going into the traditional finance route was just not a fit for my personality. Any lessons to share from the successes and failures of building your own companies, building and starting your own companies prior to Multicoin? Lessons that you've brought with you to Multicoin? I would kick off with one. I think Kyle will agree with this one. My general advice to people who are young is take more risk. People are too scared, usually. They should take more risk. You can afford to make mistakes, especially when you're young. You can afford to do something that turns out to not work, and that's okay. You don't need to be building on the stable foundation forever. Take more risk, especially when you're young, and go and have conviction and try something. And if you're wrong, that's fine. You have a good story. Very strongly agree with that. I think one of my other really important meta learnings from Pristine that's definitely translated over in, I think, a unique way in the multi-coin has been just sheer perseverance. Most of the entrepreneurs we back, they bust their asses and they're working very hard. Most people who know me know that I'm particularly hard charging. I'll, I'll say is probably the right adjective. I and mean, when I put my mind to something, it gets done. That trait is extremely valuable. Across all types of things you can start, that's probably the most generically useful one across anything, I think. And I certainly brought that into Multicoin as well. It's much less common to see that, I'd say, among investors. It's certainly been very helpful for us in just making sure we move fast, keeping the pace of the firm moving. As people who work here will tell you, a lot of things are going on. I and mean, it kind of feels like we're all underwater. I and mean, that is by design. Yes. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's really the key thing. There's always going to be chaos, especially in an industry that's moving this quickly, like crypto is. Everything is changing so fast. I think one of the key cultural attributes there is just being comfortable being uncomfortable. It sounds like the discovery of Ethereum was really the impetus to start going down the crypto rabbit hole for both you guys. Was there a seminal moment at which you saw it was time to transition this from maybe more of a hobby to a full-time job? And was it obvious that you guys should start Multicoin together? I don't recall a specific moment. Actually, no, I, I think it was the Gnosis ICO, which was, it was like May 5th or May 10th or something of 2017, but it was in early May. And that was at that point, probably 10th legit ICO. At that point, I remember I was tagging with Char and they brought $12 million in in like 30 seconds. And I remember both of us knew how hard it was to raise venture money. And we were like, something is happening here. And I think that was the moment that I recall that we said, there is now a market here. We can do this professionally and there's enough to do and there will be enough to do to keep us busy. That was our moment that we struck. I think that's right, Tushar. I think so as well. And the thing that I remember was realizing that the tech was now ready for people to start building interesting things that could go and change the world. Previously, it wasn't really ready yet, at least in, in my opinion. In 2016, you really couldn't build anything on Ethereum. It didn't work. And like you could never really build anything on Bitcoin. It was 2017 where it started to become more clear 
that you could do things beyond just create digital money that's out there. Because we knew what we didn't want to do is go and start trying to trade Bitcoin up and down. That's not what we do. That's not our edge. Our edge is in thinking about these assets, thinking about how the technology is going to be applied. And in order to do that successfully, you need there to be enough assets. You need there to be a diversity of assets out there, diversity of theses, et cetera. And 2017 was the first time that truly became possible. If we jump into your approach to investing in the crypto markets, I think one of the things that really differentiates you guys from your peers is this thesis-driven first approach that you have. Do you mind expanding on that and why you think it's the best way to invest in the crypto space? I think being thesis-driven means a few things to us. The first thing that it means is we really start from the thesis first. A lot of investors go through the list of assets out there and they say, do I like this or do I not like this? Or if they're VCs, they look at deals as they come across their desk and they decide on a case-by-case basis, do I like this or do I not like this? And that's not how we operate. The way we operate is we first form a thesis on how a particular sector of the crypto world will evolve or how a specific market will play out, how the technology will be implemented, how products could be designed, something that we can have some conviction in, some sort of thesis. And then we go and find the best way to express that thesis in the portfolio. And that process is just reversed. We actually tell the team frequently, we are not an investment organization. We are a truth-seeking organization. Our job is to go and think about ideas and think about how things will play out and go and figure out the truth and assign probabilities to the truth. And we happen to monetize the truth through investments. Yeah, I think some other comments I would add to that. I think one of the really powerful things about thesis-centric investing is that theses should be able to compound indefinitely. I would say of all of the types of risks we underwrite, whether it's market timing or product or founder or competitive dynamics or whatever, entry valuations, et cetera, the one that I would say we consistently struggle with the most and I think most other VCs also probably struggle with the most is timing. Being too early is obviously painful. It sucks being too late. It's usually easier to tell if you're too late than it is to tell if you're too early. But given the fact that market timing risk is, I think, probably the hardest form of risk to deal with in very general terms, then if you're right and you nail something, you want to make sure it can just compound indefinitely. And so like the internet is the best example of this. You could have gone long Amazon in 98, 99, 2000. Ignore AWS. Assume AWS never happened because that was unforecastable. Just the core thesis of the everything store, starting with books and expanding from there. That thesis is still compounding 26, 27 years after the founding of Amazon. Basically, any web business today you look at, that's more or less true for PayPal, eBay, all of these things. The markets continue to grow and compound. And so when I think about what does it mean for us to be thesis-driven investors, I want to think about things that... If we're right, and if we're not too early, which that's usually the problem we deal with is being a little bit too early, that it can just compound indefinitely for 10, 20, 30 years. The other really amazing benefit of that is that it's also the most tax efficient way to invest because you don't incur taxable hits. And we also then, at least in our venture funds, can make in-kind distributions as well. And so that passes through all the way to the LPs as well. It gives you an extra leg up in producing outsized long-term returns. And part of that thesis-centric approach is you guys are prolific writers, I would say, of research that you share publicly. Is that knowledge share a key tenet of your philosophy as well? Our blog, to the most part, speaks to the crypto community. 
But even within the crypto community, not everyone has time to keep up with everything going on. And there's real value in helping educate the rest of the crypto community about what we're thinking. And it helps educate them and bring their knowledge level up. That also reaches kind of external audience as well, people who are not full-time crypto. Arguably the hardest thing to do in the space over the last five years and probably over the next five is just general education. And the way we kind of look at writing as doing our part to help make that happen. Yeah, I have a few things to add here. I would say writing has actually been really core to our culture. The way I think about it is that when you are speaking your thoughts or just thinking your thoughts, it's very easy to have holes in your logic. Writing them down forces you to make sure that you are not straw manning something or skipping a step. Then, very importantly, we are not afraid to be wrong in public. We will share our thoughts in public, even if there's a chance that we're wrong and we don't mind at all. And actually, that I think is probably our biggest edge is that we are not afraid to be wrong and then people correct us. And that has been enormously, enormously valuable. We also use writing extensively internally. A lot of our meetings, especially like investment committee meetings, start silently where everyone is reading memos and commenting back and forth in those memos to each other. We find that that works a lot better than having spoken meetings because the problem with spoken meetings, to be quite honest, is the people in power positions like Kyle or myself can just keep talking and dominate the conversation. Also, only one person can talk at a time, which is pretty inefficient versus in writing, it reinforces a flat structure and idea meritocracy where anyone can say anything. Everyone can talk at the same time. You can't crowd people out by just being louder or being in the power position. So I would say writing is absolutely core to our culture in multiple ways. How about on the time horizon access? How do you think about the merits of a shorter term trading approach? maybe trying to time exposures to crypto market cycles versus a longer term, more fundamental strategy and what suits you guys best? Well, there's a funny saying, Kyle says this all the time, all of our debates are a function of time horizon. I would say we focus on the longer end of the scale. Even in our hedge fund, we're looking at two years out and venture fund, we're looking at much longer than that. We are not short-term focused. The Crypto markets are incredibly inefficient and also incredibly irrational on a short-term time basis. And so we really find that there's too much noise if you're looking for something short in two years, unless you're like an active trader, liquidity provider type strategy, saying something like Delta neutral, something like that, like that's fine. That's just not what we do. What we're really focused on are fundamentals on a longer term time horizon. Within that fundamental orientation then, where do you see the opportunities on the liquid versus illiquid spectrum in crypto? Or I guess, are you set up to play the whole continuum? So we are set up to play the whole continuum. We have our hedge fund and we have our venture fund. It's really the same strategy and same set of theses across both funds. The difference between them, obviously mechanically lockups, obviously the venture has a longer lockup and has a more strict recycling provisions and such. But really the more important difference is the venture fund is just a higher risk, higher reward vehicle. We are putting more higher percentages of the fund into things at earlier stages in the venture fund with the explicit goal of taking on more risk. There's a fair bit of name overlap between venture fund one, venture fund two, and our hedge fund. And that reflects, again, the fact that we have developed theses and we like these things and we want to hold them and let them compound. I have a kind of a rule with anything we invest in, that the time horizon, again, it should be able to compound indefinitely. Not that it necessarily has to, but at the time of entry, we need to believe that 10 to 20 years from now, there are still broad-based macro forces that are supporting this thing and allowing this thing to continue to grow. That's very important. If you look at capital markets in the last 10 years, excluding crypto, probably the most important thing or one of the most important things has been the private companies are staying private a lot longer before going public. 
and all of that wealth creation is happening in the private markets. In crypto, these things just go public at Series A, kind of as a comp seed to Series A, if you were to try and frame it to those terms. And look, some of these things do feel overvalued. A lot of these things launch at a billion dollar market cap. And I think most people would agree it shouldn't be worth a billion dollars. But if your time horizon is long and if you like the thesis, you know, that just unfortunately is the cost of, of, of playing the game. That doesn't mean that if you're right, that it can't become 10 billion or 30 billion or you know, whatever the number is in five years. And so that's generally the way we, we think about things. We have a lot of things in the hedge fund and the venture fund that we want to hold for a long time. I think one of the other things that is unique about you guys is the concentrated best ideas mentality you have to building a portfolio? Why is that the right approach for you guys? It's a good question. We really focus on conviction because what we think about is what do we actually know? What do we know and what do we really believe? And this goes back to the thesis formation and starting from the thesis first, starting from the fundamentals first. What we're doing is we are forming deep conviction in the idea And then that allows us to have a more concentrated position. The way we look at this in the hedge fund is we have eight to 12 positions that drive the vast majority of returns. And it's really a best ideas fund and it's quite concentrated. So there's only a few ways that something leaves the fund. Either, you know, one, the thesis plays out or is appropriately priced by the market or overpriced. Two, we get some information that the thesis is not going to play out. Something changes, something bad happens. Or three, we have another idea that we like much better. But otherwise, the time frame of the fund is indefinite, and we want to let things compound indefinitely. And so what we look at is really what are our best ideas? And then we know our LPs are diversified on their side. So what are they looking to us for? Is that they're looking to us to put up our best ideas and express conviction. And obviously, concentration can cut both ways. So how would you describe your risk tolerance and willingness to hold through drawdowns? And I mean, you guys have been around since 2017. So maybe talk about the experience of managing a portfolio through the crypto winter of 2018 and crypto Black Thursday in March of 2020. We have higher risk tolerance than most people, which if you're going to be a crypto fund manager, I think that's kind of required. <laughs> um, so I, I think you need to normalize the answer to the question, not against the broader investor population, but against probably our peer group. Among our peer group, we're probably still at the further end of the risk spectrum. But I also think we think about risk differently. I generally think quantitative forms of risk measurement are not super useful, like vol being the most classic one. Stuff in crypto has over the last 10 years gone down 50 to 85%. It's happened many times. I think it will happen again. If you just kind of assume that will happen again, then you can rewire your brain and think about portfolio construction differently with some of those assumptions. Even this year, between the local peak in April and the bottom peak in June, the entire market was down 50%. And we're at all-time highs right now. We didn't blink. I mean, we just sat through it. And like our portfolio was down about 50% peak to trough. We didn't meaningfully outperform or underperform through that period. You have to know the game you're signing up for. If you sign up and you try and get crypto returns and try and have equity vol, you just drive yourself crazy. So know the game you're playing. If you're playing an entrepreneurship game, then you need to be all in and work as hard as possible to try and make it. If you're going to be a crypto investor, you just have to be ready for those drawdowns. That means you have to manage leverage accordingly. That means you have to think about sector exposure and those kinds of things. Those thoughts are reflected in our portfolio construction. And we all just message to our LPs. It's going to be volatile and to expect it. As long as you know what you're underwriting, that's okay. Known unknowns are okay. Unknown unknowns are what gets you. But you can pretty meaningfully mitigate unknown unknowns through portfolio construction. 
I have a few pretty strong thoughts about this question. One, I would say is I agree with Kyle completely on the quantitative forms of risk measurement are not particularly useful. We are not managing for volatility. It's impossible if you're trying to do that in crypto to manage for volatility and also manage for highest absolute returns. We're really focused more on the returns. People do try to sell their winners on the way up and then try and buy them back if it comes back down. But the problem is they don't know that that's going to happen. The number of times that people have told us to sell some of our biggest, best positions early on, it's crazy because they don't have the conviction in the actual thesis. And what they see is, oh, this has gone up. Perhaps you should trim. And I am reminded of this uh, picture I saw of Paul Tudor Jones pointing towards a sign that says, losers average losers. And so we don't actually try to go and take the market price and then use that and try and trade around it, around these positions. I think there's too big of a risk of being whipsawed where you sell, you think it's going to go down, but then actually it goes up and you never get to buy it again. What if you sell, it goes up 10X and drops down 80%. You're better off holding the entire time because you're never going to be able to buy it back cheaper. And while a lot of people get worried about exit liquidity, honestly, given our level of conviction in these assets, I'm more worried about entry liquidity. Will we be able to buy this at scale again? I think that that's a really important question that people need to ask, especially institutional investors who are used to asking that question. One more thing I would add, I think that there's a big difference between uncertainty and risk. And I think people use those terms interchangeably. Uh, We are not looking to have a ton of uncertainty exposure in the portfolio, but risk is okay. Here's an example of how, how I think about the difference between those two things. If I flip a coin, there's a lot of risk. It's 50 50, but it's not uncertain. We know that what the outcomes are, they're defined. We know the probabilities of the outcomes. There's not a lot of uncertainty, but there's a lot of risk. And so when I am looking at the portfolio, I want to construct a portfolio thinking about uncertainty, but I don't necessarily pay a ton of attention to the risk or the measure of volatility in that sense. Yeah. I think another helpful way to frame it, something goes up 10x in a month or two, whatever, a pretty short period of time, which again, this happens in crypto pretty frequently. The natural inclination is to sell. And the implicit assumption is some notion of mean reversion. It's gone up too fast. Therefore, it must go back down. I, as like a fundamental worldview, strongly am averse to the notion of mean reversion because the world is changing. Software has obviously changed the world tremendously in the last 20 years in the internet. In crypto, we are at the bleeding edge of software and finance. Believing in mean reversion, I find it to be like a very backwards-facing view of the world. Our job is, by definition, to be forwards-facing. So I reject kind of the notion of mean reversion as a point of principle, given our mandate to be long-term fundamental investors. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. 
absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. You guys really emphasize partnering with and being a value-add resource for the protocols and companies you're investing with. What does that look like in practice? And why do you think it's so important in this space? So I wrote a post a few years ago that was titled The Evolving Role of Crypto Investors. And I really saw that as a guidepost towards some of the things that we do today. In crypto, these products and projects are decentralized. And that means that it is not just one centralized team that's driving forward all the progress. Typically, investors are used to centralized teams and they're used to things like centralized governance where, oh, I invest in this company, I have a board seat, and if the board doesn't like the plan, we can remove the CEO and change the plan. That doesn't work in crypto. There is no board, there is no CEO, and there is no team level governance, really. What you need is what we call network level governance. You need to participate in the protocol. You need to have a brand in the community. You need to be putting forth governance proposals, et cetera, and actually being a part of that protocol to help make that protocol credibly neutral, help make it decentralized, and help drive it forward. So what we find is you cannot execute team-level governance in crypto. You need to do network-level governance, and that requires more active participation by investors into the community in order to have the legitimacy to change the protocol. You don't want a protocol that's changing with 51% majority. That's not great. That's not the nature of a lot of these things. You want rough consensus. You want broad consensus. And you want to make sure that people agree to these open source standards. The crypto world is just totally different than traditional business in this way. And so we find that the best entrepreneurs want to work with investors who understand this in crypto that will be actively involved and will help support them in that mission to be fully decentralized and credibly neutral. To give a, a functional example of that, I think it's the one that is the most unique and difficult for outsiders to appreciate is we really help entrepreneurs understand crypto capital markets. There's a lot of norms that have developed over the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, both in private markets and public markets. In public markets, you talk to an investment bank, there's an IPO process, there's a file an S1, a roadshow, whatever, analyst engagement, all these kinds of things. Private markets have similarly developed in the others with how you engage VCs and decks and presentations and all these things. Crypto is really a new kind of capital market it's different in a few pretty important ways. One, it's global. You can kind of see this today in the commentary from politicians and regulators about Robinhood and GameStop and AMC and all of that. And to some degree, I think they're largely just confused about like who is this new class of investor in the market that is moving the needle in some meaningful way. They're unused to seeing that. I mean, just multiply that by like a thousand because like the amount of retail that's outside the United States is just in much, much, much larger audience. So that's a very different structure. Second, I think this is very underappreciated. Everyone thinks they're a VC. Everyone in the world, both in the United States and outside the United States, has seen what the internet and the iPhone has done, Uber and Airbnb and, and all these apps. And everyone gets it. There's these software ideas that keep coming around, that keep being big. And everyone wants to bet on the next one. And they generally have a poor sense of history and competitive dynamics and network effects and whatever, all these other things that make investing very hard. But nonetheless, everyone just thinks they are a VC. And so risk tolerance specifically for early stage 
software things among the global retail populace is much higher than I think traditional capital markets investors acknowledge or recognize because everyone wants to be a VC, especially for consumer products. Third, just the dynamics of token distributions and engaging with exchanges, market makers, community engagement. You don't have quarterly analyst calls and earnings statements. All of those norms around comms, there are no legally defined rules on any of that stuff. There are some norms that have developed, some of which are good, some of which are bad. And then there are other things that are better to do if you're a consumer app versus dev infrastructure or whatever. But all of the norms of engaging the capital markets themselves, you kind of have to redrive them from first principles, given the, the unique structure of this capital market. And so we look at all those things combined, we have developed the kind of instincts and intuitions around how to navigate those realities. And traditional generalist VCs certainly have not. I mean, it's taken us years to develop those, those instincts and those intuitions, and it's required making a lot of dumb mistakes and working with CEOs and helping them deal with those dumb mistakes. But also it's extremely unintuitive to entrepreneurs. Almost no one has launched a second token. The number of people who are, have, have already launched a single token and gone through that cycle is extremely low. And therefore the vast majority of people who launch tokens, it's their first time to launch one. And they have not gone through that process and that experience. We have gone through that process and that experience 30, 40, 50 times. Just so much accumulated knowledge we have on what to do, what not to do, how to engage the market, et cetera. I think it's extremely important. And you can really either create or theoretically destroy a lot of value very quickly by either doing that well or doing that poorly. You guys have a co-managing partner, co-PM set up. And I'd say in our investing, we've seen examples of the co-PM model both working spectacularly well and spectacularly poorly. So why does it work for you guys? It's a really good question. I mean, I think it really fundamentally works because we started as friends and we had a long relationship already. I mean, we were roommates for four years. We had spent a lot of time arguing already. And so we had developed the right tools to be able to argue effectively and be able to actually convince the other person. And the really important thing is that we both keep our minds open to be convinced by the other person. I had this funny conversation with my wife a few months ago, uh, and my wife is good friends with Kyle as well. And she said, you know, you and Kyle agree on basically everything, but all you talk about is like the small sector of things that you disagree about. That's basically right. So it sounds like we're arguing all the time, but really we agree on most things. And I think that those fundamental first principles are really key. Then the other thing that I would say is we recognize where the other person is stronger as well. Kyle leads on more of the thesis formation and I lead on more of the portfolio construction. That being said, we both have strong opinions in, in either direction, but plays more to my skill set or more to Kyle's skill set. And it's very fluid, but having the mutual respect and the knowledge that the other person is open-minded and willing to change their mind when presented with new information, I think is key to making a co-PM model work. And if you can make it work, I think it's much better. It's much more stable than a single leader model, just because you do have the stability of, oh, well, one person's having a bad day is not going to change big decisions or change how decisions are made. I think that stability is quite valuable. I've observed that being forced to make my case, both in writing and then in dialogue after that, is what allows you to identify the holes in your logic. But you oftentimes just need other people to poke the holes in, in the logic. It's very difficult for me to imagine being in a single 
PM model given that reality. I realize it can be done, but it's just a lot better to have people poking holes. So when you guys do have disagreements, what do they tend to be about? A lot of debates come down to being a function of time horizon. Also, speed of making decisions, I think is another one of like, oh, we saw this thing. Should we act immediately or should we go and wait and think about new competitors entering, et cetera? I would say those are probably two major topics. I certainly have shiny object syndrome. I like new toys and new things. They capture my attention quickly. I also tend to forget about them pretty quickly. But <laughs> uh, I, I certainly have, have shiny object syndrome. And that can be both a feature and a bug. But I, I'd say it, for the most part, annoys other people around me, which I understand why. But I still like the shiny new objects. I've listened to you guys recently talking about this move to a multi-chain world where certain layer ones and other protocols work best depending on how a user wants to interact with the blockchain, you know, be it gaming versus NFTs versus DeFi. How do you guys think about this evolution and how best to invest in it? This terminology is not widely adopted or framed this way, but will become increasingly true over the next few years because there are different kinds of layer ones. The most common kind is what looks like Ethereum or Solana, which is primarily for smart contracts, which really means DeFi. That is the primary use case. I'll highlight two other functional kinds of chains, something that looks like Arweaver Filecoin, which the primary objective is storing large files. And the third kind I would highlight is something that looks like textile or ceramic, which looks like a blockchain, but it's not designed for finance applications, which are based on scarcity, but instead designed to be database applications focused on abundance which I realized that was an abstract statement. I can kind of revisit it later. But those are three functionally different things. And all three of them are layer ones. All three of those things have to co exist because they just do different things. And they're not even competitive with each other. Within the context of what is more commonly referred to as layer one, which really just means something that looks like Ethereum or Solana, it's not obvious why there needs to be multiple chains other than scaling problems. Otherwise, it's not clear that there needs to be. There is some opportunity for experimentation on the edges in terms of encryption around front-running resistance and MEV stuff. There is some design space around consensus algorithms. I don't mean to imply there isn't interesting experiments to run, but rather in some end state of the world, once the answers to all of those experiments are reasonably known and understood, it's not clear why you need to have three versus six of those different layer ones, other than maybe scaling reasons is, is arguably the only one I can come up with that I think really stands the test of time. Given that reality, I tend to be a one-chain maximalist in the long run. However, the scaling question is undecided and will take a while to figure out. And the world is path-dependent. There are things that you can reason about that they should theoretically be this way, but because of the way history plays out, you end up with a suboptimal or incorrect outcome. Probably the best example of this would be the QWERTY keyboard. The QWERTY keyboard is horribly inefficient, but we all use it because that's what they use for typewriters and they use it for typewriters because it was slow because people jammed on more efficient keyboard layouts. 40 years later, we're still stuck with a QWERTY keyboard. And there's other examples in history of this, but that's probably the most high profile one. So the value of these things is in being composable and being on a single chain or a single shard is what naturally gives that to you. If you do introduce multiple chains or multiple shards or mollups or whatever, there is a cost of that. There's a, at a minimum two explicit costs and secondary and tertiary costs as well. But the two explicit costs are you're increasing the total amount of computation to be done because you're having to verify signatures on at least two chains or two places as opposed to just one. And then the second 
is you're introducing latency because there's some latency cost of moving between these various environments. There's other more squishy costs of things like developer experience and user experience and wallet support and all these other things that are harder to measure but are very real social costs. But those two are like explicit technical costs. And given both the explicit technical cost and then the softer, squishier social developer experience costs, I think gravity trends towards one chain. That's kind of my base view of the world. I don't know, Tushar, if you want to add anything to that. I do. I think this is a really complex topic. So I'll I'll give a simple analogy. There are, like all analogies, some holes in it, and it doesn't exactly map one-to-one, but I think it's a useful framework. The way I see layer one blockchains is they are similar to operating systems. We've had two major waves of operating system development, maybe three in history. The most recent one that was meaningful before this was mobile operating systems. And what we saw was originally there were several There was BlackBerry's operating system, there was Palm OS, there was Symbian, there was Windows Phone, then obviously there was iOS and Android. And I'm sure there are several others that I'm not even remembering right now that had some capital behind them, had some marketing behind them, had some users, but then ended up being not super relevant. And when I look at layer one blockchains, what I see is the new era of operating systems. And this era of operating systems has certain trust guarantees and security guarantees and neutrality guarantees that it makes, just like the mobile era of operating systems had some performance guarantees and screen layout optimization things that they did. And typically, I think the way that these things develop is first, someone thinks of it and they write the first one and then there's only one. And then people think like, should there be more? And then many companies realize, oh, this is interesting. This is going to be a really big market. Let's go compete. And the world gets really heterogeneous. And there are many. And then what you see is there are natural returns to scale or network effects to these types of platforms. And so it consolidates down. Now, in the history of operating systems, what we've found is a stable equilibrium is usually two operating systems at scale. We have iOS and Android at enormous scale. And I think that preserves the amount of choice that is necessary to allow these platforms to explore different parts of the trade-off space of the products that they're building, while also giving you the same levels of returns to scale or network effects that cause the whole system itself to be the most efficient. So if I had to guess what the long-term outcome of layer one blockchains will be, I would expect it to be a similar duopoly as what we see in older operating systems. On the topic of layer one, I have to ask about the highly successful investment in Solana. I guess, what did you see early in the Solana team and technology that gave you the conviction it would become a serious competitor to Ethereum? So I think first was thinking from first principles, what are these blockchain things for? Bitcoin was digital payments or like digital gold, depending on your perspective, but it really only can send money from point A to point B, and then has some pretty strong guarantees that there won't be more than 21 million Bitcoins. That's about all it does. And it was architected around that idea. Ethereum launched with a bunch of very grand visions for decentralization. And I mean, you go watch Vitalik's keynote from January of 2014, it's about 17 minutes long, and he highlights theoretical use cases for Ethereum. And actually, most of the ones he highlights are actually finance applications, which is like pretty remarkable. But the architecture of Ethereum looks like Bitcoin, meaning proof of work, block production, all these other things. Ethereum looks a lot like Bitcoin. When we got into crypto in 2016, the light bulb went off for both Tushar and I was finance. We were like, this seems to have important implications for how to think about value movement, value trading, risk, and et cetera. We couldn't 
understand what DeFi would mean, but we could feel that that was important. Over the course of 2016 and 17, we started to observe the first applications on Ethereum. And those were Ether Delta was the first real application, which was a very primitive exchange. And then ICO was the next major application which is a capital formation fundraising tool. But obviously the key is once you get the ETH and the ICO, you need to be able to trade it for something. The third major application we saw was the ZeroX protocol and its associated exchanges, which was a less primitive, but still not great exchange system. And the fourth was Maker, which has this DAI stablecoin thing. But in order for DAI to work, you need to be able to trade DAI. Like DAI has to be liquid for the system to really work as intended. And I remember at some point in early 2018, we sat down and we were like, you know, it seems like the common thread among all of, these things we're seeing is trading. And at some point it clicked for us that trading is the key thing. And if you look at Ether Delta and Zero X, which were the two first real exchanges, both of those systems had all kinds of weird properties in them that the teams had to deal with the fact that Ethereum was not designed for trading. And so they had to make all these weird, weird design decisions and compromises to try and make their systems work. We met Anatoly and Raj in his April or May of 2018. And the subtitle for the title slide said NASDAQ for blockchain. They don't use that messaging and they dropped that a long time ago, but it's pretty amazing that even as far back then, again, the term DeFi would not be coined until October or November of that year. And Anatoly was like, I'm just gonna build the fastest trading system possible. And he was just like, I wanna build an order book and I wanna have it on a globally distributed network of nodes that are permissionless. And none of us could really appreciate the significance of that, but we were just like, that's what he wanted to build. And it turns out that trading was the thing that we kind of recognized was important. And when we started to look at the design of Solana, it was very clear that every decision in the system was made from the ground up to optimize for the things you need to make an order book work. And it's actually not that many things you need to get right. The obvious ones are just aggregate throughput. You just need a lot of transactions to make an order book work. And latency has to be really low. And then the cost per transaction has to be really low. There's more than that, but those are by far the three most important things. I mean, Anatoly understood those and was like, we're going to build a system designed from the ground up to do those things as good as possible. That, and then coupled with his background, I mean, just again, his whole career, all he's really ever done is make things go fast. And he's done that with chips. He's done that with operating systems. He's done that with wireless networks. He's done that with data systems and storage and distribution, data center optimization. He's really operated at every layer of the stack, again, of the goal of saying, make things go fast. And I remember one of the most striking things was all of the other layer one founders I had spoken to tended to come from a lot more academic backgrounds. And not to say that they were necessarily professors. In fact, the very few of them were professors, but that they had, I'd say, a strong academic orientation. And Anatoly is almost antagonistic to academics. He is just like, I don't care what your paper says, show me the code and show me how fast it goes. And that struck us as very important and very distinct. That combination of things is what led us to having the conviction to say, Let's pull the trigger on this thing in size and stick with them even through a pretty dark winter. It was a dark winter for sure. So like I said a little bit earlier, one of the things that we somewhat specialize on between Kyle and myself is Kyle does a bit more of the thesis formation. I do a bit more of the portfolio construction. And both of those played a really big role in Solana's success for us. It was not only picking it, but also having the size that we had on. And really one of the main things that I think contributed to the conviction necessary to put on that large size of a position for us was their ability to ship. 
really what we saw was when we looked at the landscape of all of the scaling solutions for blockchains, we saw a lot of unsolved computer science problems. We saw a lot of questions of how are sharded blockchains going to work? How do assets transfer between these different shards of these different blockchains? Whether we're talking about Ethereum 2.0, Near, Polkadot, those are sharded blockchains and they require some meaningful computer science breakthroughs to happen in order to actually function and deliver what they needed. Solana did not need that. Solana had a ton of engineering work ahead of it in order to actually deliver the system that they wanted to be able to deliver, but they did not need to solve an unsolved computer science problem. And I think that was the key turning point in my mind. And knowing that they could deliver that product that they had promised gave us a conviction to size it up aggressively, buy out other investors and secondary transactions. And we led every single round that Solana ever did. And we expressed that conviction in significant portfolio concentration. Another theme I've heard from you guys recently is the budding opportunity further up the tech stack and the chance to invest in more consumer-facing projects now that much of the core blockchain infrastructure has been built. Can you frame that opportunity for us a little bit and maybe with an example or two? Absolutely. I think now that the infrastructure has really matured in crypto, it's now more possible for entrepreneurs with some industry experience, whether that's something like social media, telecom, electricity, like anything really that's adjacent to crypto to come in and build in the blockchain world. And examples of that that we're really excited about right now are creator monetization. We've seen major change in the adoption of NFTs and other forms of creator monetization tools, social tokens, et cetera. And that's just moving further up the stack. And we think it's possible because crypto has had its iPhone moment. We think Solana is the iPhone moment for crypto. Before the iPhone, it was just hard to develop for mobile phones, right? Like who was developing for BlackBerry apps? But once you had the iPhone moment of the thing is now usable, then that really enables developers to express their creativity. Draw the same analogy to the 1990s and dial-up internet. A lot of those ideas existed and you could have built an application on dial-up, but I still remember hearing that weird sound and then seeing images load line by line by line. And now we have Solana, which is like broadband to Ethereum's dial-up. And so when I see that infrastructure change, when I see things like the graph and Arweave and some of these other tools that are becoming very popular for developers to use, it just makes it easier for people to move up the stack. I think... One of the more unique investments you guys have been involved with from an early stage is Helium. And I feel like everyone I talk to now is trying to get their hands on a Helium hotspot miner, myself included. I think I've been waiting for like eight months now. I know, Tushar, you've been really close on this one. Do you want to talk about it a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. Helium is really exciting and it really flips the traditional business model for telecom on its head. The way that traditional telecom works is you have some big company like an AT&T or a Vodafone, Telefonica, any of these big giant corporations. They hire a bunch of people who wear hard hats. They rent a bunch of space on top of tall towers or buildings and buy a bunch of really expensive radio equipment. They have those people then go and install that equipment and maintain it. And then they have a giant budget for marketing and customer support 
in order to monetize this huge capital asset that they've created. And it's really expensive. Telecom is one of the most capital intensive industries out there in the world. And so Helium flips that model on its head and says, instead, what if you as a consumer just go buy this commodity hardware device, you plug it in, connect it to your Wi-Fi, and you put it in your window, and you are now creating wireless coverage for your neighborhood. It's dramatically cheaper because there's no rent and there's no employees. So that means that you've just cut out the vast majority of the costs that the centralized telecom providers have. Helium is a business model innovation. It's not a technology innovation, really. It's a business model innovation in the same way that Airbnb or Uber are business model innovations. And that business model innovation is in cutting out that cost. There's one other major innovation that Helium pioneered, which is called proof of coverage. And this is to solve the cold start problem that any of these marketplaces or, or platforms have. No one wants to be a supplier to a network where there's no users, and no one wants to be a user of a network where there isn't enough supply. You can imagine the same things applying to Airbnb or Uber, where it doesn't make sense to rent out your extra room on Airbnb unless someone's going to actually come and rent it. And no one's going to go search on Airbnb until there are rooms or places to actually rent. And so Helium invented proof of coverage, which incentivizes people to provide coverage even before the demand side was there. And that was really important to bringing on the demand side. And now there are a number of high profile customers that use the Helium network, such as Nestle is using the network in order to track vending machine inventory. Lime uses the network to track location of scooters. Uh, there are a number of interesting smart city use cases. Here in Austin, there's a nonprofit that is testing out fire sensors, which use the Helium network to help detect wildfires early and combat them. There's people using it for agricultural use cases to track soil moisture and help use water resources more appropriately as climate change goes and change the environment. And we have to be conscious about our water usage. And all of this is now enabled by Helium because it is so much cheaper. If you try to do this on AT&T, Verizon, or some of these other centralized telecom companies, these sensors would cost a lot more. You're paying 10 bucks a sensor, 30 bucks to activate it, and then you're paying 10 bucks a month. With Helium, you're buying the sensor for five bucks and you're paying a dollar a year, usually in data transfer fees. And so that new cost structure is enabling all of these new use cases. And we're really excited to see where that goes. The network has achieved pretty significant scale already. There's 250,000 hotspots live all around the world, mostly in the United States and Western Europe. Also, China is now growing pretty substantially and the rest of the world is still pretty new to the Helium network. But with the amount of hotspots on backorder like yours, we are expecting the Helium network to really be the biggest wireless network in the world by the end of next year, have more access points than any other centralized telecom provider by the end of next year, and have potentially even more users. So pretty excited about that growth trajectory. A couple other comments I would make. One, you can actually see the Helium network live. Go to network.helium.com. We are about to cross 250,000 hotspots. This is one of the things that's really unique to crypto is that we underwrote the investment assuming that Helium Inc. goes away. Not to say that they will, but the entire system is open source. The hardware, the software, the antennas, the specs for integrating the SDK into third-party hardware, the blockchain, everything is open source. And so you might say, well, it's the defensibility. And the defensibility itself is the token. It's the HNT token. It's the fact that all these people have the token. It's the liquidity of that token and the market cap. And it's a very, very new kind of moat and network effect. And one that 
I cannot intuitively reason about how you can develop a better, cheaper, faster system. It's really cool to think about we could have a world in five or 10 years in which Helium Inc. does not exist. And you have this amazing global open network kind of powers huge amounts of wireless infrastructure. So I think you guys just celebrated your fourth anniversary of being a business. And I'd say, I mean, your rise in success in such a short period of time has been remarkable. You started Multicoin with a few million dollars, and now you're one of the biggest, most well-respected managers in the crypto space. So as you think about the next five years at Multicoin, what motivates you guys to continue to succeed and how will you define success over that period? I would zoom out and say like, how do we judge our success? We got into this because we understood from first principles that this was going to have important implications on finance. Tushar, more so than I, especially early on, recognized the importance of these technologies for helping facilitate capital formation and human coordination in interesting new ways that wasn't really possible before. And we wake up and work hard every day because we want to make that happen and happen as quickly as possible. And we believe in the power of that. For me personally, I think Tushar probably agrees with this, but certainly for me personally, I find COVID has emboldened my my views there. There's a lot of regulators and politicians telling me how I should or should not live my life. And they're telling a lot of other people around the world how they should or should not live their lives. And I find that to be very annoying would be a generous term. And we can let your mind imagine elsewhere for less generous terms. And it's really about sovereignty in the most abstract sense, the solution. And so, you know, I get up every day very excited about helping accelerate the adoption of self-sovereign software systems. That's what keeps me going every day. I think I measure our success by, are we making that happen? Yeah, totally agreed there. I think you have to be a mission-oriented team in order to drive great success. If you are a mercenary rather than a missionary, the problem is you lose motivation and you can't keep going after a certain point. Anything that's been great and really big in the world has been built by missionaries. And that's what we are. Like I mentioned earlier in this conversation, we see ourselves as a truth-seeking organization, not just an investment organization. We just happen to monetize through investments. And this is the most stimulating industry in the world if you're looking for new patterns and new truths. If you're trying to reason about what equilibriums will look like and how things will develop, there's nothing quite like it. And that's because what we've done in this industry is we have combined the pace of open source development, where everyone is always building on the latest and greatest, no one's wasting time reinventing the wheel, with a capitalist incentive mechanism around these tokens. And so you have motivation to go build on the latest and greatest and open source everything. And I think that that combination is going to power a tremendous amount of innovation and is going to fundamentally reshape society. I see crypto as being the tool that will reshape society as much as mobile did as much as social media did, probably more. And when you look at what's happened in the world today with COVID, with what's going on in politics, and you can see the effect that things like mobile or social media have had on the world. And so we really see our role as helping shape how blockchain technology can play out and impact the world. Kyle mentioned earlier about the path dependency about some of these technologies, the QWERTY keyboard and such. And so that's really what motivates us is to try and be good shepherds of the technology and of the ecosystem to try and be the change that we want to see in the world. Awesome. Good stuff. Let's maybe move into the closing questions. Feel free. We can treat this as a lightning round if you want. So first one here, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? 
brand strategy video games. I really love these video games that have this historical concept and one of the rulers of ancient Rome or China or India or something playing this game. I love those. Yeah, for me, cycling. I used to do SoulCycle or something similar for a while and then COVID hit and all the cycling studios closed and it was either get a Peloton or get a road bike. And I got a road bike. I cycle a lot now. I still do indoor from time to time, but I love cycling. What is your most important daily habit? I would say meditation. I don't know that I do it daily. I'm not disciplined enough, sadly, but I'm working towards it. And it just reminds me to zoom out, right? It's very easy to too closely identify with things that are happening that day or that week. And just zooming out is really helpful in identifying your own emotions. I'll say for me is working out, whether that's cycling or lifting, usually more cardio. I can observe a change in my brain and how I feel and specifically my ability to make decisions. And my job is to make decisions. So I'm going to go with working out. What is your biggest pet peeve, personal or investment related? Investment related, my biggest pet peeve is overstating network effects. That's like weirdly specific. I find that network effects, the term on the internet is like way overused. And even when it is used, the implications of how it's being used are mostly incorrect. We literally in our investment memos have a section, we have a templated investment memo system and one of the sections is why does this investment present compounding returns? And not all notions of compounding are necessarily network effects, but whenever people state network effects incorrectly, it really irks me. I have two things here, actually. One would be what I call gotta catch them all syndrome. And a lot of investors have that where they feel like they need to be in everything that makes money. Oh, I missed that one. Well, what was your opportunity cost? And I don't think you have to catch them all. If you didn't have the thesis, if you didn't have conviction, it is okay. We're investors. We're not Pokemon trainers. You know, we don't have to catch them all. The second thing I would say is semantics. I really care about, you know, words mean things. Uh, and when you use words inappropriately and, they, and aren't using them to mean the thing that they mean, then communication is really imprecise. And we have a shared vocabulary that we've developed at Multicoin, which allows us to be far more efficient in communications because we use the words to mean the same thing as everyone else. What is the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I'll say not appreciating the difficulty of market timing. Tushar and I got very, very bullish Apple 09, 10. I remember they were beating every single earnings and we understood that this thing was going to change the world and the world did not understand that the iPhone was going to change the world. We bought a bunch of Apple out of the money, long dated call options and didn't make as much money as we should have because we got a little unlucky on timing and then repeated the same mistake in a different form with Pristine, which was Google launched this glass thing. And I was like, this is going to change the world. And I had a very poor understanding of history and did not appreciate how many new form factors and hardware launches had been launched over the years in technology that had not been successful. I was way over indexing on the iPhone and the iPad, which were the two most recent ones and which turned out to be two of the most exceptional ones and not appreciating how difficult it is to do new form factors and not looking at the Newton and a bunch of other things. Had I done that homework and research, I probably wouldn't have built Pristine. I think timing is a really good answer. We've both made several timing mistakes, both individually and together. I would say the biggest mistake I made was always related to fear of not wanting to do something because I was afraid of what would happen or afraid of risk. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? Hard work, without a doubt. 
I mean, my parents are both immigrants. They moved here from India. They had nothing but 10 bucks when they moved here. That used to go a little bit further than it does now. But they worked seven days a week for my entire childhood. They owned a retail store and did the classic immigrant parent thing of work really hard and teach your kids to work really hard so that they have that value throughout their entire life. And that has served me extremely well. Yeah, I'm going to echo that. My parents also immigrated here from Iran. Both my parents worked very, very hard growing up, and that has certainly left its impression upon me. And then last question here, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your career? I would say the most important life lesson that I've learned that I wish I learned earlier was conviction and having more conviction in myself. Obviously, we've been right about several really big, important things. And there were a lot of times where doubt created a less pleasant mental environment than it otherwise could have. So it all could have been a much more enjoyable journey. I'm going to go with needing to have enough balance in your life to stay sane. I have at times just worked and worked 12 to 14 hours a day and not take care of myself especially working out and diet. And whether you're an investor, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're making decisions, you're making a lot of decisions. You can't beat biochemistry no matter how good you are. You have to take care of yourself. It's very, very easy to not do that. If you do it right and plan it and structure it, you know, end-to-end time, including showering, you can be 45 minutes a day and it's worth losing 45 minutes of work to do that. Great, guys. This has been fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Mike. Mike, thanks for having us on. This was a pleasure. It's always fun to go real deep and get real introspective on yourself. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. 